Steve Bannon defiant for now, but Liz Cheney's out there saying, okay, get ready for a perp walk, buddy. The lead starts right now. Breaking today, President Biden making a move that might leave Donald Trump very few options, as at the same time, the alt-right Rasputin, who helped Trump win the White House, gives the finger to Congress and to the rule of law. What a drag. The latest jobs report delivering dismally underperforming numbers. President Biden saying COVID cases went up and job growth went down. But is it really that simple? Plus, more carnage in Afghanistan. A blast at a Shiite mosque killing and wounding dozens after the U.S. leaves and ISIS spreads. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today with breaking news in the politics lead. A bold move from the Biden White House minutes after the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection threatened Donald Trump allies with possible criminal charges. First, Steve Bannon, former President Trump's senior advisor, defied a congressional subpoena, arguing that he's following Trump's direction to not comply. Bannon claimed it might be up to the courts to decide whether or not he will ultimately be forced to cooperate. Well, today... The chairs of that select committee, including Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, said, bring it on. Another major development today, former President Trump has been telling his allies he plans to assert executive privilege to keep documents and other information from the committee. But that's not entirely ultimately up to him. And late this afternoon, the Biden administration said they will allow those documents to go from the White House to the committee. We're covering these stories and this big issue in our society from every angle, starting with CNN's Ryan Nobles live on Capitol Hill. Ryan, what is the select committee investigating the January 6th insurrection? What are they saying now? Well, Jake, first of all, they're saying that of these four men who were initially uh, issued subpoenas, Steve Bannon, Dan Scavino, Cash Patel, and Mark Meadows, that they are all offering up different levels or lack thereof of compliance. As you mentioned, first of all, Steve Bannon saying that he's not going to apply any time, or he's not going to comply, I should say, that he's going to work with the former president uh, to uh, defend executive privilege. But the committee did say that Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, and Cash Patel were engaging with the committee. We're not exactly sure what that means in terms terms of compliance. And the committee didn't say anything about Dan Scavino, who, of course, we have reported they've been having a difficult time serving the subpoena. But what the committee did make very clear is that they're going to do everything that they can to enforce these subpoenas, and they're going to use the law enforcement backing at their disposal to do so. They say in a statement today, quote, we will not allow any witness to defy a lawful subpoena or attempt to run out the clock. And we will swiftly consider advancing a criminal contempt of Congress referral. Now, uh, that referral is not easy. It requires a vote of the entire House of Representatives before being referred to the Department of Justice to be executed. And that statement about running out the clock, Jake, is also very important because the Select Committee only has a certain amount of time before the midterm elections to issue a report on their investigation. And it seems at least part of the strategy of Trump and his allies is to make this process as lengthy and difficult as, po- as possible. Jake. All right, Ryan, thank you so much. Evan, uh, former President Trump keeps saying he's going to assert executive privilege, but the Biden administration might be standing in the way of that. Uh, quote, these are unique and extraordinary circumstances. Oh, Evan, I'm sorry, you, you should re- read that for us. Right. Well, Jake, I mean, the president can try to uh, claim the privilege, but it's not really his. It's the current 
president's privilege to assert and what you see in that letter from the White House counsel to the National Archives is that the, the current president is saying that this is not protected by executive privilege. Let me read just a part of it uh, that uh, from this letter. Uh, it says, uh, these are unique and extraordinary circumstances. Congress is examining an assault on the Constitution and democratic institutions provoked and fanned by those sworn to protect, protect them. The constitutional protections of executive privilege should not be used to shield from Congress or the public information that reflects a clear and apparent effort to subvert the Constitution itself. Jake, the, the, the plain language from this administration, at least as it pertains to a, an initial batch of documents, that this committee was asking for is you should be able to get these. Now, we'll have to wait and see whether the president, the former president, Trump, who makes a lot of threats but never actually follows through on them, whether he actually files a lawsuit to try to stop this. So far, we haven't seen that, and now we'll wait and see. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at the White House for us. Uh, and Caitlin, this is obviously a very big deal for the White House, the Biden White House, to deny a former president's request for executive privilege. Uh, and, and frankly, I have to say I'm a little bit surprised because Biden is something in general of an institutionalist uh, and knows that while this is not unprecedented, it was done uh, during after the Nixon years, uh, it is still generally uh, breaking with uh, tradition. Yeah, Jake, it's a massive move by this White House to say that we are not going to step in the way and try to extend this executive privilege over these documents. Just this first tranche of documents, we should note that's what the White House is saying. But, Jake, they are justifying this by saying, you know, not only what Evan just said there, that it's a unique set of circumstances, but also saying that they believe these documents that the committee is requesting is actually going to help get to the bottom of really what happened on January 6th here at the White House, which we know has been a big hole of information. We have our reporting on what the president was doing that day, but there are still a lot of questions about that, and the White House feels that that justifies not extending that privilege. Here's how Jen Psaki explained it earlier today. The president has determined that an assertion of executive privilege is not warranted for the first set of documents from the Trump White House that have been provided to us by the National Archives. We will evaluate questions of privilege on a case-by-case -case basis, but the president has also been clear that he believes it to be of the utmost importance for both Congress and the American people to have a complete understanding uh, of the events of that day to prevent them from happening again. So they say, Jake, essentially arguing it's for the greater good, and they want the committee to be able to get to the bottom of this investigation. But the White House counsel saying that they've seen these documents and they shed lights on events within the White House on and about January 6th is quite significant. And Ryan, you noted that some of the Trump allies are working with the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, and two are, are supposed to, uh, in fact, testify next week. Uh, is that behind closed doors, and is that definitely going to happen? Uh, so the uh, answer to your second question, Jake, is we do not know the answer to that question. Uh, these depositions are supposed to take place behind closed doors. But when you look at the, the committee statement that they're engaging with at least uh, two of these individuals, Meadows and Patel, that would indicate that there's some level of negotiation taking place that would ultimately lead to them talking to the committee on some level. We should also point out that we did receive a statement from Cash Patel himself. Uh, he said uh, that he did confirm that he has been in contact with the select committee, but he said that he wouldn't describe the confidential conversations that he's having with the committee. Still, that shows a level of communication that doesn't exist with Steve Bannon. And of course, Jake, we can't rule out the other thing. We still don't know what's going on with Dan Scavino. Yeah. 
They haven't found him yet, right? Uh, and uh, Evan, this House Select Committee does not have the power to issue, issue criminal charges. Uh, right. Theoretically, they would refer whatever they, whatever they decide to do to the Justice Department, and then the DOJ decides whether or not they're going to pursue uh, obstruction of justice or contempt of Congress charges. Right. Has Attorney General Merrick Garland weighed in on any of this? He he hasn't said yet, uh, Jake. And keep in mind, part of that uh, part of part of the process here uh, would be for this to go to court. And we know we've seen this playbook before from the Trump team, which is to litigate and to stretch this out. And as Ryan has pointed out, you know, this committee has a limited time that they can that they can try to do this and they could try to run out the clock so we don't know whether the committee is going to try to do this or they may try to do some kind of civil uh contempt uh, route there's a there's a lot there's a couple of theories they could they could pursue but keep in mind the former president is also saying essentially that these people don't even have to show up because he believes they have absolute immunity which frankly, is kind of laughable. Uh, at least judges have found it so far. We'll see whether uh, we'll see whether any court finds standing on that. All right. Evan Perez, Ryan Nobles, uh, Caitlin Collins, thanks to all of you. Appreciate it. Today's jobs report, a major disappointment. So how is President Biden responding? And a tale of two Americas, the pockets of the United States that could be a powder keg for the next COVID surge. Stay with us. And our money lead today, President Biden today, putting a hard spin on one of the biggest economic indicators, missing the mark by miles. Only 194,000 jobs were added in September. That is quite a bit lower than the 500,000 jobs that economists had expected. This marks the second month in a row that that's happened. Here are some of the snapshots from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Education jobs, down. Healthcare jobs, down. Job numbers for women, down. President Biden today largely ignored those numbers, trying to focus on the fact that at least some jobs were created. But you've seen the signs. The jobs seem to be out there, but a lot of people are not taking them. CNN's Caitlin Collins is back with the president's blame on Congress for the economy not being where it should be. A big economic miss as the American recovery hits a roadblock. The jobs numbers also remind us that we have important work ahead of us and important investments we need to make. U.S. employers adding only 194,000 jobs in September, well below the half a million that economists were expecting. We're actually making real progress. Maybe it doesn't seem fast enough. I'd like to see it faster, and we're going to make it faster. President Biden pinning it on the Delta variant that peaked in September. Today's report is based on a survey that was taken during the week of September the 13th. When COVID cases were averaging more than 150,000 per day. Since then, we've seen the daily cases fall by more than one third. The president highlighting a drop in the unemployment rate. For the first time since March of 2020, the American unemployment rate is below 5%. But the drop from 5.2% to 4.8% could be in part because some people are leaving the workforce entirely as Biden's labor secretary struggled to explain why many jobs are going unfilled even after the enhanced jobless benefits came to an end. Two months ago, everyone was asking me questions about the $300 keeping people out of work. The $300 now is gone. Uh, We didn't see the the great growth there. The latest figures adding to the White House's headache as they face concerns about inflation, a worker shortage, and oil and gas prices at their highest levels since 2014. 
what we're seeing, I think, in a lot of cases is one is the pandemic is wreaking havoc and fear on people as far as going back to work. Democrats are still battling it out over the scope of Biden's domestic agenda on Capitol Hill. But the president says the jobs report makes the case for trillions in new spending and tax cuts. America is still the largest economy in the world. We still have the most productive workers and the most innovative minds in the world. But we risk losing our edge as a nation if we don't move. And Jake, we should note that what the labor secretary was talking about there, that extra $300 a week enhanced uh, unemployment benefits, that was a really big point of Republican criticism, saying uh, Republicans were saying that was what was keeping people at home. But even as you saw some states move to end it early, it did, did very little to send people back to work. And of course, as this report shows, now that those uh, enhanced benefits have expired completely, it also did not boost employment like the White House had hoped it would or how Republicans had claimed that it would. Hmm. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Let's bring in two people who have a key eye on what's going on. Rana Faruhar, a global business columnist and associate editor at the Financial Times, and Austin Goolsby, who of course was chairman of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks to both of you for being here. Rana, so let's just talk about where we are right now, as opposed to six or seven months ago. We have these amazing vaccines for COVID. Most kids are back in school. Uh, the unemployment, extra unemployment benefits have expired. Companies such as McDonald's, Bank of America, Walmart, Target, all of them raised wages during the pandemic. Many white-collar jobs are offering more flexibility for new hires. So what gives? What, what's keeping people at home? <laughs> Well, there's a couple of big factors in play. Um, You know, we shut down in the middle of COVID and it takes a while to ramp back up. It just does. I mean, that's the way the American economy runs. Other countries make other decisions about sort of keeping workers on furlough, but we go boom bust. It does take a while to get back up. I do think that we're going to be strengthening from here. But the other thing that I would cite, um, which hasn't been mentioned yet, is technological job disruption. I mean, a lot of things are being done by software now. A lot of things are being done digitally. I think you're going to see more outsourcing of white-collar jobs to other countries even. Um, You know, you're seeing automated software being purchased that can strip out, uh, you know, foreign accents uh, from teleworkers. So I think all of this is in play, and we're just beginning to see it. It's going to take many months, if not years, to really tease all this out. Austin, the very first point that President Biden noted today was that the unemployment rate fell from 4.8% down from 5.2% in August. That's, of course, good news. But do Americans see it that way? I mean, there are help wanted signs everywhere you look. You call customer service lines. They warn that wait times will be longer due to worker shortages. Um, What do you think is going on? And doesn't that all reflect poorly on President Biden? Well, you know, I, I've always, when I was in the White House and out of the White House, I try to separate the jobs numbers from what the president is doing because the, the White House is not in control of the economy. I've been saying, as you know, Jake, from the beginning, the, the overwhelming thing that drives how the economy is doing and how the job market performs is what's happening with the virus. The virus really is the boss. In the first half of this year, we started getting great control over the spread of the virus, and you saw the economy come booming back, really at a speed that that was virtually unparalleled. And now that you've had a resurgence of the virus, I think that part of of what President Biden said is exactly right. You you see the jobs numbers start to deteriorate. You're going to see the the rebound of the economy slow down. That's likely to show up in the next GDP numbers. And we've got to get control of the spread of that virus. The good news is, unlike a regular recession, people have money. They want to go out and spend. 
you got to get safe conditions. But if we get those safe conditions, I think every bit we will be back off to the races the way we were in the first half of the year. But if we don't get control of the virus, it's done. And Ron, as, as President Biden mentioned, the survey for this jobs report actually wrapped up in mid-September, uh, which is when COVID cases uh, started coming down. All sorts of COVID uh, benchmarks started coming down in, in, a, in a good way. Um, do you think the economy will get better if everything for COVID keeps going in the right direction and seasonal hiring then picks up going into the holidays? I think slowly but surely. I don't think we're going to see another big boom like we did that you know in the beginning that Austin just mentioned. I also think that it's going to take another month or two to see what women do. You know, women are a big part of this story. You saw in the numbers today that um, there weren't too many teachers going back. Um, now, some of that could be you know uh, remote work. But uh, I think that women getting kids back into school, thinking about, all right, what's the balance between the, the care that I still may, might need to provide and getting back to work? I think that that remains to be seen. And it's, it's a big part of the puzzle because many of the fastest growing job categories in care, health care, education, child care, these are, these are heavy female labor positions. And Austin, you were with the Obama-Biden administration during the 2009 economic recovery. Obviously different. It wasn't a pandemic keeping people out of work. But what do you think uh, the current White House, what do you think President Biden needs to do to help boost these numbers? Well, look, to help boost these numbers, I still think it's it's mostly about health. But I feel like both sides are going to take some numbers out of this and last month's jobs uh, reports to say we either should pass the big reconciliation bill on infrastructure or we should oppose it. Uh, so it's kind of become a Rorschach uh, test in that sense. All right, Austin Goolsby, Rana Faruhar, thanks to both. You have a great weekend. Coming up, it is the face palm that could sink the Biden agenda. Did leader Schumer lose his most important swing vote during his speech last night? We'll talk to a key progressive lawmaker next. And our politics lead, an economic crisis has finally been averted, at least for now. The U.S. Senate voted last night to temporarily raise the debt ceiling, allowing the U.S. government to pay its bills. The House is set to vote on the extension next week. But today, instead of being praised for avoiding catastrophe, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat in New York, is facing bipartisan backlash for these comments he made after last night's vote. Republicans played a dangerous and risky partisan game. And I am glad that their brinksmanship did not work. I thank, very much thank, my Democratic colleagues for our showing our unity in solving this Republican-manufactured crisis. Here to discuss, Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State. She is the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and also from the Seattle area. Congresswoman, great to see you as always. So Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who support. Democrats need to pass the Biden agenda, said that Schumer's remarks were not appropriate and that, quote, civility is gone and I'm not going to be part of getting rid of it. Uh, I'm sure that you don't disagree with what Schumer said, but do you disagree with the idea that, that lowering the temperature right now might be a good thing for the country? Uh, well, Jake, it's good to be with you. Um, I do think that, you know, we're 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 all playing on the same team. I do understand Senator Schumer's frustration because this has always been a bipartisan thing. Raising the debt ceiling, Democrats have gone along with Republican administrations, vice versa. This is, of course, about debt that was 
was increased by $8 trillion over the last four years because of Republican administration, their Republican tax cuts. But, you know, I always say if you, if you win, um, maybe just win and celebrate the win. And then, you know, you can always, you can always bring those things up later. But I can only imagine the, the stress that the Senate Majority Leader has been under to, um, to, to get to this point. So, you know, let's just move on now. We did that. We gave us a couple of extra months. It's not the ideal thing. I wish we weren't just kicking the can down the road, but it's important that we don't default on this. Um, and that we that the world knows that the United States is good for our obligations. So this temporary uh, reprieve uh, allows um, Democrats to focus on on passing President Biden's economic plans, the the infrastructure bill, and of course uh, the Build Back Better Act. According to the AP, you told President Biden that the compromise for the Build Back Better Act uh, of around two trillion dollars it's too low. You said you, you need you think it needs to be closer to three trillion. If you cannot get it through the Senate, though. If the only way you can get it through the Senate to get Manchin's vote, to get Cinema's vote, is having it be at $1.9 or $2 trillion, isn't something better than nothing? Well, Jake, I always think about that something better than nothing phrase as being good for something at the end of negotiations. We haven't even negotiated yet. You know, there was a deal that was passed. It was $3.5 trillion. Now we understand the number has to come down because there are two Democrats out of all. Uh, 98% are, are there on 3.5 and what's in the Build Back Better Act and with the president and with 70% of the American people who want us to pass it. But I understand we got to get two more on board. And so we will do what we need to do to make sure we get everybody on board. But I just want to be clear, the number comes out of the programs. So what we really need, and, and Senators Manchin and Cinema have different things that they each want. So I think it's really important that the two of them get together and agree, and then also put forward a proposal to the other 98% about what they agree on in terms of what we need to do because everyone else agrees. And so that's the process we're in right now. We will negotiate. We understand we have to get everyone on board. But yes, of course, I want to keep it as close as I can to uh, at least three trillion um, because, you know, we have a lot of things we want to do. Final point on this, Jake, remember that three trillion or three and a half trillion is over 10 years. Right. So uh, if you divide that out, it's very little each year. And we spend $750 billion on the Pentagon every year. And at the end of the day, this is all going to be paid for through taxes on the wealthiest individuals and corporations. So as the president says, it's a zero-dollar bill. Yeah, I mean, $300 billion a year is still a lot of money, but I, hear, I understand your, your point. Um, we know that one of Senator Manchin's concerns is that he views uh, the benefits as they should only go to people who really need these benefits. For example... Uh, it, he wouldn't want everyone to be eligible for pre-K for families. Uh, he, he wants it to only go to people who need gov- the government to provide it for them. Um, families who make more than $200,000 a year, $400,000 a year, whatever, should not, sh- you know, they should be paying for it out of their own pocket. Um, we hear that President Biden is reportedly saying that, that he could theoretically support that, means testing some of these programs. I know it's a goal to have universal pre-K, universal elder care, et cetera, but would you be willing to support means testing so that only the people who need it, I don't need free pre-K. Yeah. You you know, I think it depends on um, really how it's structured, because if you had, for example, a 7% universal cap 
on childcare, that is a form of means testing because you're saying everyone has to pay 7% of their income. So the wealthiest people are not going to be able to pay enough childcare to reach that 7% cap, right? So that is a form, but it's very simple and it's universal and it adjusts to the income levels of high uh, cost areas. So for example, an area like mine, where we passed $15 minimum wage 10 years ago is high cost of living, high housing costs, very, you know, very dense, uh, no, no housing available. And childcare is like $2,800 a month. So two school teachers earning 68,000 um, are, are in the working class people, you know, uh, contingent. So that's why we have to be very careful about means testing. I will also say that means testing is incredibly bureaucratic. It takes a lot of administrative work and sometimes it actually costs so much and is so complicated that the very people that need to get the benefit are dissuaded from doing it because it's too complicated. So let's look at all of those things. But I think it's important that we make these as universal as possible because it's also easy to explain. You don't have to go mm -hmm. through 21 pages to figure out whether or not you qualify. Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Jake. Are we coming down from the last big COVID surge? Not all health experts agree. We'll discuss next. Stay with us. Topping our health lead, a tale of two Americas. The United States in general may be turning a corner in the pandemic. Hospitalizations down, case rates down, deaths all trending down at last. But as CNN's Amara Walker reports, pockets of the United States are still struggling to gain a foothold against the virus. There's good reason to be cautiously optimistic. We have certainly turned a corner. Cases are down about 50% from their peak. We have passed the peak of Delta infection and hospitalization and deaths are trailing off. These are very, very good signs. In the next three to four weeks, I think you'll see this surge having uh, outlived its life. But health officials stress America is not out of the woods just yet. It's not a reason for us to take our foot off the accelerator or to, to relax our guard, so to speak. We've got to continue getting people vaccinated. While former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb predicts the Delta surge may be the last big surge of the pandemic, one health expert disagrees. I disagreed with Scott uh, in the spring when he said we wouldn't have any cases in the summer either. And uh, so I am one of those who believe because we still have 65 million Americans who have not yet been vaccinated who could be. This surge is over. It's, it's uh, obviously on the way down, but we're going to have more surges in the future. Nationwide hospitalizations are down with fewer than 70,000 hospital beds occupied by COVID-19 patients. And the current daily average of new coronavirus infections has dropped below 100,000. However, vaccination rates continue to slow. The average number of people starting the vaccination process has dropped more than 40% over the past two months, according to CDC data. And when it comes to vaccination rates among children eligible for the shots... Only 33% of the 12 to 17-year-olds uh, were given the COVID-19 vaccine here in the South, um, as, uh, most of the southern states, compared to 80% in the Northeast. So once again, you have this geographic divide where parents are holding back on vaccinating their adolescents, 
And I have to believe they'll probably hold back on vaccinating their younger kids as well. More shots in arms could come soon. The FDA and CDC's advisory committees will meet in the coming weeks to discuss boosters for the Moderna and J&J vaccines. And on October 26th, the FDA's committee will meet again to consider the Pfizer vaccine for children 5 to 11 years old. If the committee recommends the shot and the FDA okays it, a panel of CDC advisors will decide whether to recommend the vaccine for this age group. The panel is scheduled to meet on November 2nd and 3rd. And Jake, keep in mind, only when the CDC has recommended a vaccine for this age group of children between ages 5 and 11 years old can shots begin to go into arms. Jake, we're also learning children have similar risks as adults to when it comes to getting the coronavirus. This is according to a new study in JAMA Pediatrics. You know, as you know, early on in the pandemic, it was believed that it affected adults more. This study suggests that children also play a role uh, and have similar, they play a similar role in transmitting the virus, Jake. Mm. All right, Emerald Walker, thanks so much for that update. Joining us now to discuss Dr. William Shafter, professor at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Schaffner, good to see you as always. All, all the numbers right now, nationally, moving in the right direction. Cases, hospitalizations, deaths, all down, thankfully. But you say we're living in two Americas. Explain. Well, as you said, two Americas. I think what's happening is that there are the better vaccinated states and the less well vaccinated states, such as my own. And in the latter, I think we're going to see this virus continue to seek out those susceptibles who have not yet been vaccinated. And we will continue to have these these new cases occur at a rate higher than you have in the well-vaccinated states. So we may not get a big surge, probably local outbreaks here and there, but we will plateau at a much higher rate than in the well-vaccinated states. So how can we fix this problem? How can we bridge the gap between the two Americas, the America that takes the, you know, that is that is getting vaccinated at a significant level and, and those who just refuse to? Yeah, that appears to be an eternal question because the reluctance to get vaccinated is really baked in. I mean, by now, every question that anyone could ask has been answered, I think, satisfactorily many times over but people just will not avail themselves of the vaccine. So will mandates help? I think they will in part oblige people to be vaccinated and that will help in part, but I think we're still going to see this divide and I see it continuing. I agree that once the vaccines are available for the children, once again, we'll see a difference in how widely they're accepted in the two Americas. Admiral Brett Giroir, who was the COVID testing czar for President Trump, he was asked this morning if he thinks the United States government should mandate vaccines for air travel. Take a listen. It's a complicated issue. I, I don't believe uh, we should. Uh, and, and the reason is this, particularly for air travel, Air travel is safe. It's not for the protection of the people on the plane. It's just another way to sort of force people to do their vaccines. So I don't think that's justified, and it will really hurt uh, the industry and travel. Do you agree? Well, I think he's exactly correct. The travel itself, being on the aircraft, is is at exceedingly low risk, particularly if everybody keeps their masks on. 
And so that's not the issue. It's just another device to get people vaccinated. So I wouldn't single out that industry in particular to make sure all of its customers are vaccinated. I think we're going to be struggling with this for some time, Jake. So you think it's safe, for example, for me and my family to get on a plane right now, as long as we're masked, with fellow passengers who are unvaccinated? You think that that's still pretty safe? I don't like to use the word safe. It sounds so complete. I think it's at very low risk. And as I always tell people, it's not what happens on the conveyance so much. It's what happens when you get to your destination. How free are you in your behaviors there? And of course, if you're going, I would certainly recommend that everybody who's traveling be vaccinated. Heck, I recommend even if you're staying home, you should be vaccinated. All right, Dr. William Schaffner, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, a mosque blast killing and wounding dozens caught in a turf war between the Taliban and ISIS after the U.S. left Afghanistan. The latest next. attacked in Afghanistan as the Taliban try to assert their control amid mounting violence. The terrorist group ISIS-K is now claiming responsibility for the suicide bombing that killed and wounded dozens of innocent people. This happened in the city of Kunduz, which is about 150 miles north of the capital of Kabul, which is where we find CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. We should note the suicide bomber targeted a Shia mosque. ISIS and the Taliban, as you note, Clarissa, they're Sunni. That's right, Jake. And this is exactly the kind of hideous sectarian attack that Afghans have become all too used to uh, during the past years, in which some had hoped maybe with the Taliban in control and the Taliban really uh, pushing this idea that they could provide security, that maybe this would be a thing of the past. Well, now we see very clearly that it is not a thing of the past. Those were ordinary Muslims, Afghans going to the mosque on Friday. Today is, of course, the Muslim holy day uh, for their after for their noon prayers when that huge blast hit, killing more than 40 people, injuring more than 100 people. And we do now have uh, a claim of responsibility, as you mentioned, from ISIS-K. And this, make no mistake about it, Jake, this poses a major challenge to the Taliban because, as I mentioned before, their main appeal to many people here is this idea that they can provide security, that they can put an end to the fighting. But this is not the first major attack we've seen. We saw one three days ago here in the capital and weeks before that, of course, at the airport. So Taliban now has a serious issue on its hand with this growing insurgency as it tries to show the Afghan people that it is able to govern this country, Jake. Larissa, today's bombing is is part of a steady increase in violence following the Taliban takeover. What, What is the Taliban saying about that? Well, it's interesting. On the one hand, the Taliban isn't saying much at all, and they are very much trying to limit access. When there was a a, a big explosion a few days ago at a mosque here in Kabul, they wouldn't let any journalists anywhere near the area. When there were a series uh, of raids on alleged ISIS safe houses here in Kabul that night, again, they wouldn't let journalists near the area. They released these perfunctory statements just saying, we've managed to kill this many ISIS-K terrorists, or we've managed to take out a 
an ISIS-K cell, um, but they're not really willing to give the public a sense of what their overall strategy here is for dealing with this. And that may be because they haven't been in that position for a long time. You know, they were the insurgents for 20 years, Jake. Now they are the ones in control. They are dealing with a brutal, vicious insurgency. And it seems that they have their work cut out for them, trying to come up with some kind of a strategy uh, that will deal with this once and for all. And nothing that they have said so far publicly indicates that that solution might be imminent. All right, Clarissa Ward in Kabul, thank you. Please stay safe. Police today acknowledging some odd behavior by Brian Laundrie's parents. We'll explain next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.